Welcome to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. My name's Michael Dooney, director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery and host of the show. In today's episode, I'm speaking with gallerist and publisher Hannah Watson. Hannah is the co-founder and director of TJ Bolton Gallery and the director of independent publisher Trolley Books. We talk about the serendipitous encounter in Venice that had such a lasting impact on Hannah's life, the founding of TJ Bolton Gallery in Fitzrovia in 2011 and the tragic event that followed shortly after, as well as the evolution of the photo book industry over the past 20 years and Trolley Books part of that change. Please be sure to follow Subtext and Discourse Artworld Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Hannah Watson. I think it's impossible to talk about your origin story without mentioning Gigi Gianuzzi. Gigi Gianuzzi, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know much about him, actually, before, I have to admit, and I guess I wasn't in London in the late 90s and the early 2000s and part of the scene. Reading his obituary and reading other stuff about him, he was a force. He was a force. He was a one-off. I think also probably one of these people that you could say the name Gigi and you don't even need to worry about his surname because yeah, people Gigi know who you're talking G- yeah. about. You say Gigi, you know who you're talking about. So. Before you met him, because he obviously had a profound effect on your life. Yeah. What were you doing before? How did you lead up to this moment? Well, not much. I mean, I was 25 when I met him. So I'd like to say I had a long, illustrious career before Trolley. <laughs> but the truth is, is that I've only had pretty much one job since I was 25. I met him in London, but I met him properly in Venice. That's when we kind of bonded and when he offered me the job. So how, why were you in Venice? I was in Venice because I was doing the internship at the Peggy Guggenheim Mm -hmm. for a few months. And I'd met him just before I left and did two weeks kind of work experience, as it were, in Trolley in London in the gallery. And I did spend most of the time avoiding him because he was always shouting and I didn't (laughs) understand that that was just his way. I was very kind of British and slightly kind of scared of people that shouted all the time. So I did actually spend most of my time avoiding this crazy character. But then I kind of met him in Venice properly. And I'd been at the museum a couple of weeks and I loved being in Venice and I did love the museum, but I felt that I wasn't kind of really meeting Venetian people or it was quite international or expatty in a way. And then all of a sudden my phone rings. I didn't even know he had my number. He's like, hey, Hannah, it's Gigi. I'm in Venice. Do you want to come over for dinner? So I went over there and walked into the room and there, I just immediately felt at home. And I think there's not many times in life where you really do feel at home. And I think that's always something you should be guided by. It's just this feeling of comfort and, and being surrounded by the kind of misfits of Venice. It's Palestinian guy, old Dutch guy, Venetians, surrounded by books, books everywhere. Huge bookcases, photographs all over the wall. No kind of discernible living space. It felt like very much a office come apartment. And okay. Very beautiful, but in a kind of very bohemian artistic way, right in the middle of Venice, like this amazing location that he'd taken over. But before that, I'd done history of art at university. So my background was more art. And then I'd worked for an online art company for a couple of years. And then I was always writing reviews for the online art company. And I was drawn a lot to photography. And one of the interviews I did was with Oliver Channerin, 
when he had done an exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery with Adam Broomberg when they were working together, uh, Mr. McKeezy about the 10 years after apartheid in South Africa. And I didn't know that that was a trolley book. And I remember reading this article about the project. I think it was in the Observer magazine. And they, the journalist was describing turning up at Ollie's place and the publisher suddenly appeared out of the bathroom in a little pink towel. And I just thought, <laughs> oh my God, who's this guy? And uh, obviously that was Gigi. Yeah. And when you meet him, it makes total sense. I mean, the whole name Trolley as well. I had the book Ghetto, which was also Adam and Ollie's book. That was my first Trolley book. I remember opening it, seeing the name Trolley on the title page and thinking, Trolley, that's a weird name for a publisher. Yeah. Are they serious? Because this book's very serious. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's really kind of exciting in terms of books. And I think it was one of the kind of books that really started my interest off in photo books. And then, of course, you know, that turned out to be Trolley and, and Gigi. So it kind of, life has a way of coming full circle. Ah, so it was, I guess, through the books and then re-meeting him and that sort of involvement. Did you ask him for a job? He offered you a job? like? Well, no, he, it was a classic Gigi thing. He's good at getting people to kind of do things and get people involved. And people always willingly do it because it's also a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's not really work. So, you know, you go over there and he's like, hey, yeah, come over. Can you write the press release for the show back in the gallery in London? Or can you help write the blurb for the book that's coming out? And he goes, and then we're going to go on the boat and then we're going to go to the beach and hang out and then we're going to drink and we're going to have, you know pizza and we're going to bomb around the lagoon so yeah i mean what's not to love yeah it's work but it's the best kind of work that kind of lured me in and also i just loved i just loved everything that trolley was doing i loved the books and the gallery was younger than it had oh, so really, did how like the gallery did exist still gallery had just started so the space in red church street had been going since 2003 so about a year or two after Trolley had started in 2001. And when I joined, they'd started doing exhibitions with artists that they knew. But it wasn't like the gallery, not like TJ Bolton. It wasn't a kind of representing artists. It was more like a kind of platform. And the parts of town are different as well. Because as a non-Londoner, yeah, and for people that are listening that aren't from London or really familiar with the different districts or boroughs, mm. how is Shoreditch different to Fitzrovia? Well, Shoreditch at the time was full full of artists. It was like the East End melting pot of creatives. So Redshirt Street had galleries on it and artists living around in their warehouses. It was kind of where a lot of the YBAs were. It was definitely where the kind of art scene was at the time. Funny enough, now it feels very much like it's in Fitzrovia. So Fitzrovia's got lots of galleries. We had three open in the past month. We've got one opposite, one around the corner. It's taking advantage of the pandemic in central London, empty mm. properties. And it's the same way that art places always innovate. They find a way to do things. You've got an empty space, we'll do an exhibition, we'll set up a gallery. Mm. And that's what East London was like. It had empty spaces, it had big spaces, it was cheap. I mean, I think when we moved to Fitzrovia in 2011, one of the reasons we moved is because Shoreditch had become so much more expensive than it had been in the decade that we'd been there. Wow. And Fitzrovia just was a bargain because people didn't even know where Fitzrovia was. They're like, oh, where is Fitzrovia? It's, it was kind of central, but off the Because when you look at it on the map, it's near Oxford On Circus, the map, it looks like it's bang in the middle Soho, of everything. Like it's really close yeah, to And stuff. then you get here and you're walking around, you're thinking, where am I? Yeah. <laughs> and it's quiet, apart from that car that just drove past. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved 
So you're living in Venice, you moved back to London. From somebody writing reviews and doing art history, did you ever think, I'm going to get involved in publishing now, I'm publishing books? Well, I really loved photography and I like writing. I'd even try to be a, a photographer. Mm-hmm. I mean, a failed photographer. It was actually the reason how I met Gigi and Trolley is because I went to meet Polly Braden, mm-hmm. who's a photographer who I knew for a few years. She was the only person I've ever shown my portfolio to. And while I was showing it to her, I thought, oh my God, this is really bad. <laughs> and I just, uh, and she, I think she could sense that. And she said, so what do you like doing? And I said, well, actually, I think I prefer writing. I really love photography, but I don't think this is going anywhere. And then she suggested Trolley. She said, oh, what about, do you know Trolley? And I said, yeah, I've got a few books from Trolley. And she said, I've got, they've got the gallery on Redshirt Street. And she had a friend who worked there at the time, put us in touch. And that's when I first went there. Then I went to Venice straight away afterwards. And that's when Gigi got in touch. Mm-hmm. And then he said, he basically tried to make me leave Venice straight away. Oh, okay. And it was always so dramatic. He was like, and I said, I can't, I want to stay here a couple of months and finish the internship. And he's like, no, Trolley will be finished by the time (laughs) you've ended. And I said, but I was quite firm. And I said, no, I'll be there 1st of October. And he's like, oh no, too late. And of course it was all very dramatic. And I thought, oh my God, what if Trolley really does finish? And of course it didn't. And I turned up on the 1st of October at the gallery in Shoreditch. And yeah, that, that's when it's kind of started off. And did you start as partners or you no, I started grew into off, the role, I guess? Grew into the role. So what was also different, when I'd been there in the summer, the whole place was full of the designers, Martin and Y were there. They were like sharing the space. And there was Anna who was working in the New York office. She, had, she was spending the summer there. And there was like a kind of always buzz and people around. And when I turned off in October, there was like no one there. It was just Gigi pretty much. <laughs> and I was like, where did everyone go? And then like, well, he'd had a fight with one of them. And then Anna had gone back to New York. Martin and Y had found their own office. And it just was a bit of a different vibe. And so I thought, right, okay, huh, okay, bit of a roll up your sleeves moment and just started trying to just work with him. Mm-hmm. And obviously I didn't know anything about publishing and he'd been in the business a long time. So I was learning a lot from him, but also it was pretty obvious that we were a good match because mm-hmm. he was the kind of energy, the ideas, the passion, the knowledge, the book guy. And then I was um, organized, had ideas, but you know, needed someone to kind of bounce them off or mm-hmm. had initiative, was helpful, could write English. Gigi's famously <laughs> made up a lot of words in the English dictionary that often used to appear in our catalogue at like 3, 4 a.m. in the morning, which would drive our designer insane. It's like, Gigi, you've been touching the InDesign. And sure enough, it would get printed with yeah. these little insertions. It just was the basis of how we worked really well together. And there was no one else. It was just just me there. So I did everything and we pretty much became, you know, working partners yeah. from then on. And as far as like, because photo books now are a bit more ubiquitous than they were yeah, sort totally. of 20 years ago. Yeah. And I guess a lot has changed in that time. Yeah. Kind of give us a sense of what the photo book landscape was when you started at Trolley Books. It was a lot smaller I think you could probably count on one hand the publishers. 
And it was still in a kind of nice, close-knit community. So there was a lot of kind of friendship. So Derry Lewis and Mike, when Michael Mack was still working for Steidl, Chris Boot, and a kind of smaller playing field, as it were. And it, was, it wasn't young people. It was oh, people okay. that had been around in the business a long time. But interestingly, people like Bruno Cheskel, who had been working for Chris Boot, that's where he started. He started working in the kind of established but independent photo book publishing world, which there were about five. <laughs> and then he started seeing around 2008, around the time of the financial crash. We used to get together. I mean, nothing's changed. All publishers like to get together and moan about the state of publishing, the state of everything. I'm in a WhatsApp group with Aaron Morell and Maxwell Anderson. It's called Complaints Department. Okay. Group. <laughs> we just like to moan. But that, that was the same, you know, early noughties, mm. mid, to, you know, 2005 when I joined Trolley. It was always difficult. And the difficulty then was that everything was going to go digital. And it was like, how are we going to innovate? How are we going to, bookshops are closing, everything's going digital. We need to make a PDF of a book, which is obviously the most boring thing in the world. No one ever should buy a PDF of a book. But it was a kind of a crisis moment. And then the unexpected thing happened because the financial crash really energized publishing and kids, the young people, students were really obsessed by making things out of paper and printing. Yeah and zines and lo-fi stuff and they didn't want to wait for a publisher and they were making up their own rules because there were no rules because there was kind of ground zero of what was going on and then that's when Bruno started realizing that self-publishing was happening and picked up on it and started making a platform for it and then this huge kind of tsunami of publishing started happening probably about 2010 11 and ironically, it, it was kind of around the time that Gigi died, um, yeah. 2000, end of 2012. And he missed all of this. He, he missed all of the book fairs. Like his background was the Frankfurt book fair. You yeah. know, that's where he grew up, cut his teeth, where the name trolley comes from, pushing around a trolley at the Frankfurt book fair instead of getting a stand. Mm -hmm. That was in the 90s. And that was the only book fair. It wasn't the New York Art Book Fair. There wasn't the book fairs that happened during Paris, off-print. Mm -hmm. And off-print and those nothing. ones, yeah. No, none of that. That's all new. That's in the past decade. Yeah, crazy. So I always say to photographers, like, one of the best ways you can get your work out there is by producing a book. And I guess as a publisher, I imagine you would say, yes, a book is good. Why are books good for artists and photographers to make and to get out there? A book is an amazing object because it really pulls everything together and it's the only kind of way to read a lot of photography a lot of stories they are labors of love there's a lot of thought that goes into them they have a lot of integrity they're beautiful objects and they are really a kind of really considered beautiful object and they're not easy to do I think that's the other advantage or advantage, disadvantage, as I think if you're willing to go to the effort of making a book, you're already going to stand out amongst everybody else because mm. it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, not, but the problem is, is, not the problem, but the difference now is that because there's so much self-publishing that there's almost like this shift towards publishing, as in having a publisher, having that support 
network, giving a home to, I mean, I, I think with trolley, there's definite sense of what a trolley book is. It's not just any book. And when people ask the number one question, you can talk for an hour to students and give them your whole story about everything. And then at the end, they always ask, and how do I get my book published? And I was like, <laughs> you weren't listening because there's no one way because every publisher is different. Every single book that Trolley has made has got its own story. So after Gigi died, we did this book, Trolleyology, which has the story of every single book that he made, that Trolley made. And that's when I really realised that there's no rhyme or reason. Everything has got its own story. You know, some photographers would turn up at his house after six months because he didn't reply to an email. And then he'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, let's publish it. Or one photographer turned up at Frankfurt, Amanda Tetro with just a sheet of paper with the story written on, mm -hmm. not even any photographs. And it was about her father. And Gigi just immediately started crying and turned away. And she thought, oh God, he hates it. He's not interested. Because she thought he was literally just walking away from her. And then he turned around and he had tears in his eyes. He's like, yeah, we're going to publish it. So stories like that. Because as I understand, like when he first started publishing the books, they were more difficult subjects or he was publishing things that maybe other people weren't yeah. willing or daring enough to put out there. Yeah. I mean, also that comes from his, he didn't care about, I mean, he was very passionate and he was very political mm. and he really cared about making books. And also he'd lost his first company. So Trolley was his second company. So the first company was called West Zone. And he had lost that through doing all the conventional business maneuvers because he had a degree in economics. He was a businessman. Yeah. When he worked for Alamandi in the art newspaper, you know, he was doing foreign rights. He was sales. You know, he had the business background. And when he started up West Zone on his own, he got backers, he got investors, he got all that. And then he got one guy who didn't believe in his vision and he ended up resigning from his own company. And Westerlone just totally fell apart. So he knew what it was like to to do all the kind of business things and lose everything. So mm. with Trolley, he, he was never going to do that again. And he always had nothing to lose. And that also had the spirit of Trolley. It's like you've got a shop, you're pushing around a shopping trolley, sure, yeah. you know, you've got nothing, but you've got everything because you've got your freedom. And he would only take money to make books from people that it wasn't an investment because Anyone who works in publishing knows that you're not making money out of making books. And so he that's how he started. He, as he went, meant to go on publishing what he really wanted to publish. So mm. he, when he met Philip Jones Griffiths and Philip had got this project on the effect of Agent Orange in Vietnam, Gigi said, it's not good enough when he looked at the dummy. And yeah. Philip said, what do you mean? And Gigi said, 100 60 pages it's got to be at least 180 and and philip said that was the closest he'd come to religious conversion yeah and he wow. described it as stars meeting in the night and it's rare but it happens and that's how this book about agent orange came to happen because it was just chance that a crazy passionate publisher met uh well he wasn't crazy mm -hmm. but a very clever and astute and knowledgeable and empathetic and I don't know whether the word passionate is but not in the kind of passion way of yeah. <laughs> the Italian energy but you know they they shared that belief and desire to make a book out mm. of something as difficult to look at as Agent Orange yeah 
And so how has it changed then over the years with the kind of books coming out and also with the industry changing as much as it has with the self-published revolution and more people putting books out there? How have you guys still differentiated yourselves? Well, we always do what we want to do. And I think you've always got to stay true to that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, since Gigi died, I've been doing it on my own. So I have two things. I have to think about kind of a legacy and what Trolley is as defined by what he started and what we kind of did together. But also that was 10 years ago. Like, he mm -hmm. died 10 years ago. And, and I'm thinking, what do I want to do? What interests me? And I think it's a balance between both of those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we weren't a million miles apart, but I, I would never pretend to be someone like Gigi. He was a one-off. No. Yeah, But I think I bring my own sensibilities to what I think is important. So my new book, for example, Andy Galdi Binko's book, Sorry I Gave Birth, I Disappeared, But Now I'm Back. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very interested in, in artists and photographers that are focusing on the female issues, the stories, children, not children, pregnancy, childbirth, career, live, life, lose work, you know, all of these issues that kind of just affect women and, and they affect men as well but not in the kind of same way so I think I'm naturally drawn to things like that yeah but not exclusively but I swear Gigi would publish this book yeah that's always a good litmus test and he would love it well I think as well and I guess what I've learned through I guess through my wife but also through being a parent and being there with a lot of the I guess women's issues is that they affect everybody, but we don't hear about them and they're often played down. And you think, why wasn't I told about this before now? Why yeah. was this sort of like my parents went through this, my mother went through this, every other woman that I've met has gone through this, but somehow it's kept a secret? Yeah. I mean, Andy said she wants every kind of new mother, new parent to have the copy of this book so that you feel that you're not alone. Look at this. You're Googling the same things as I Googled. You know, the chaos is the same. The worries are the same. The guilt is the same. It's everything that you're, it's a universal thing. And then I always remember one line, she's like, how can something so universal as motherhood be so lonely? So this idea that you feel like you're on your own. And this idea of the book as well. I remember when she said, I want, you know, every new mother and father should have this book. And I thought that's exactly what Philip used to say about his Agent Orange book. He's like, yeah. I want to have this book on the desk of every US member of the House of Senate. You know, it's the power of the book. You know, it's this amazing object of information mm -hmm. in its most basic sense. Yeah. That is a physical thing. You cannot substitute having a book in your hand. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Just going backwards a little bit, I guess you've already mentioned that you were moving from Shoreditch to Fitzrovia. Yeah. With the moving to the new space, did it become more of a gallery at that time? Yeah. We had come to an opening of a gallery in Fitzrovia and a bit like when I walked into Trolley in Shoreditch or the apartment in Venice, you know, that feeling of comfort, of feeling at home. And I felt that when I walked into Fitzrovia, I thought, this area is great. And I thought, how come I've never really looked around here? And that feeling coincided with everything that we loved about being in Shoreditch mm -hmm. evaporating. So the money moved in, the artists moved out. Most of all, they destroyed the local pub. They got yeah. rid of the landlord and her partner and 
hearted it up and it was horrible. And so there's this real sense that things were being destroyed. And uh, we had a big banner across the top of the the gallery in, in Shoreditch. Joe Strummer quote, greed ain't going anywhere. Yeah. Gigi loved that. Yeah. And it was just like a big laminated sign that he'd made. So we came to Fitzrovia and I saw a sign outside a building and we just basically started looking. And then one day I saw a sign outside this building and and I was just nosy. I really didn't think there was anything inside. But it's such a beautiful building from yeah, the, the outside. Yeah, the facade is amazing from and, the outside. you know, when you're looking around at houses, you know, you've you're actually just being nosy. Oh, can I go and look in, in, inside this building? It's really fascinating what you can find. So anyway, I just thought, let's go and have a look at that building because it's amazing from the outside. And then we came in and it would be in this old office and it seemed better days. Everything was covered up. So you couldn't see the kind of mosaic floor or the nice parquet wood floor. It was all under office tiles. But we walked downstairs and there was this, as it was now, mm-hmm. this big high ceiling room yeah i mean we had a quick look at it before it's incredible because you you just don't expect to go downstairs into a big space yeah it's really unexpected and the price of it was the same it was less than what we've been they were trying to up our rent in in shoreditch they were trying to kind of quadruple it or something (laughs) crazy yeah the greed was actually getting somewhere and that was a bit depressing but then we you know we found this place and I remember Gigi saying, we were walking down the street after we just got the lease and he said, oh, give it another seven years and then it'll just be like Shoreditch. And in a way, he's right. It has changed a lot. But in a kind of, maybe because it's the pandemic has put a bit of a buffer on it and it's actually just allowed things to like galleries to kind of come in and use empty spaces. But it's, it has changed a lot. There's a lot more stuff going on. But I think it's segued into a good place. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd already mentioned that he wasn't unfortunately alive to witness the kind of explosion of publishing and books. Yeah. It was not long after that you moved into this space that he had cancer. And then, I mean, it must have been really fast by the sounds of yeah, things. Yeah, it was, we moved in at the end of 2011. And then six months later, June 2012, he was diagnosed pancreatic cancer. And then it was very quick, six months after that, Christmas Eve 2012, he died. But as you can see, so that the painting next to you with him on the sofa, mm-hmm. he was never really, never really domestic kind of guy. So he used to kind of stay on the sofa a bit, then go and have a shower in Shoreditch House. Or yeah. <laughs> he lived like that. But he was spending a lot of time in Mexico with his girlfriend. He wasn't really here that much, but he loved it here. Like he really loved it. And it was, you know, he felt really at home in the area. But yeah. But how is it for you then? I mean, this is obviously a tough question, but you've moved to your new space and you're like, yeah, it was like the best of times. And then we did an exhibition of Alighiero Boetti, who is obviously a really important Italian artist. And it was in the middle of that exhibition, right in the middle, that he got diagnosed. And we went from this feeling of we've arrived, this is our moment, to the, you know, the rug being pulled out from underneath us and then everything just I mean I don't even remember what what we kind of did I mean it just went into survival mode crash course in cancer looking into crazy cancer treatments while keeping everything going 
And I think that I was lucky because I did have that side of Gigi to keep alive, to keep going, yeah. keep the books going. And that's when we started working on the Trolleyology book, which was everyone coming together, giving their stories, you know, how they met Gigi, what their book was, what their exhibition was, what their party story was, you know, all, all of that. And that was something to really bring everyone together. So it was, it was, it was a really hard, sad time. It was actually weirdly, and I'm sure a lot of people have found this when someone dies, that when you have everyone coming together, there's quite a lot of love Mm. and such a kind of tidal wave of good, positive love towards someone that it can be quite a special time. Obviously, it's difficult because he was really ill and I wouldn't wish pancreatic cancer on anyone. But it it was a kind of special moment. And then after he died, we worked on putting together the trolleyology book. I don't even know how we did that book. I think, you know, sometimes in life you, you wake up and you think, how did we do that? Because I don't even remember doing that. Yeah. It's like this enormous book with everyone's stories. And it's a miracle for a trolley book. It's like not even that many typos. <laughs> <laughs> not even any kind of strange Italian English words that had slipped in. And then we did a party in Venice in the Venice Biennale because obviously trolley was started in Venice. It's mm. still got a lot of history. And that was a kind of amazing thing as well. So yeah, Venice is like this our spiritual home. Yeah. And Gigi's still got a lot of friends there. Print all of our books near there still. Oh, cool. Okay. Inland with the Balde Sozo legend. It was definitely a difficult time, but I would say that someone like Gigi had generated so much. Even, I mean, he died when he was 49 and I was 32 when he died. Yeah. So 49 felt a lot older, but now as I inch towards it, it gets younger and younger. I know. Well, when I looked at it as well, it's like, that's the end of where I am now. Like I'm 41 yeah. and he was 49. Like, yeah, that's it's so young. Like, well, yeah, when you're in your 30s or your, your 20s, you think, well, 49, that's really old. It's miles but then, away. But then it's as you kids. get close to it, you're like, no, actually. <laughs> it's around the corner. It's around the corner. It's like, and I feel, I still feel really young. And Me it's too. Like, yeah. Gigi was a kind of youthful guy, but I think in his short life, he managed to make an impact. And I think a lot of the, you know, making books, they last and they're around and they mean a lot to people. Yeah. He didn't do it to create that, but that's just a byproduct of it. Yeah. And so how was then the initial stages afterwards? Like, did you kind of think, okay, well, now what do I do? Yeah. I think the dynamic of being two people and going to one is the hardest thing. I think we can kind of underestimate the power of collaboration sometimes and Mm. two brains working in synergy and like what can come out of that and to sort of lose your sparring partner and Mm -hmm. somebody that's been such a creative force in your life. Yeah. I remember thinking I can't do it on my own and thinking, right, I have to, like Gigi was that, he was this, he was that, I can't do that. And then I have to be more Gigi. And then I think the realization was that, no, I had to be more me, be more me as well. So I had to basically develop parts of my personality, my brain, which hadn't been developed. And But I, I did kind of have it in me, but it's just, you have to shift your dynamic. And I don't think, I mean, when he was dying, we did talk about 
you know, finding someone else that could come in and mm -hmm. it just doesn't work like that. It's like falling in love. You just, it doesn't happen overnight and you just have to learn to do it on your own. But the thing is that I learned so much from him that, and I think a lot of people, you know, do you know, even Nan Golden, she was saying, oh, I met this guy and he had a tattoo and it said WWGD tattooed on his arm and she was like it meant what would Gigi do <laughs> and she's like it was such a sign and I was like yes I know what you mean because there's a lot of that you kind of think what would he think and I hear it a lot yeah like, especially in you know with everything that's going on in the world because he was so engaged and he knew everything about he knew every dictator from every remote country he was really involved with what was going on and People always ask, you know, what would Gigi think? What would he do? Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe at the time we took it for granted a bit that he was the kind of oracle of politics and really, you know, he loved protesting. He was always out of protest. And he never kind of really gave up on that. He would still, and protesting now is it's very prevalent and everyone goes out and protests. Yeah, he was ahead of his time in many ways. I mean, died ahead of his time, mm -hmm. Yeah, was ahead of his time. But his legacy is not just in the books, but in all of his friendships and, and foes. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of foes <laughs> out there too. He's definitely left an impact. And, you know, I take a lot of strength in thinking about how he would approach things. I guess the first few years would have obviously been incredibly difficult, but was there a point where you felt like you'd sort of you'd hit your stride and you're like, no, I'm... Yeah. I think the first book where I thought, this is me, this is like, and I just really feel this 100% was Sean Davey looking for Alice, mm -hmm. 2015. Before that, I had done the Scarty book, which was with Adam Lolly, which was amazing, this magical story that related to the ghetto book. And then I did Dan Budnick's Civil Rights Marches book, which was also very important, powerful, beautiful project. But it was when I met Sean in 2015, that was the kind of, I really felt this was a kind of really 100% my kind of project. Gigi would have loved it too, but it did definitely feel something that I had, you know, really felt like my own own beginnings, as it were. Yeah. And from that point then, have you, like you mentioned before, that you, you explore a lot of topics relevant to women mm. and your roster of artists is only female isn't it yeah do you pick them and i wonder this because i've had a similar experience with my gallery is that we pick like we always said okay we want to have 50 50 men and women male and female mm -hmm. but we pick the work first yeah and then work out the rest later mm -hmm. and through that process we ended up with more women than men like 70 percent. we never got to 100 percent, but is it a similar experience for you that it's just the work that you gravitated towards? Yeah, 100%. I had, I've never went out to just represent women artists mm. because I'm so on my own and it's just me here. I don't have an assistant. It's just, I mean, I have my boyfriend Biscuit. He installs the exhibitions. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to do anything without him. It's the one thing I can't do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot hang. Don't let me touch any art. But it's you realize that you only can do things that you really, really love, really mm -hmm. believe in, really get behind. So that's what's driven with the books and the gallery is only do projects that I really, really want to do that are really kind of, that I love 
working with the artist, the photographer, love the work. And that's maybe naturally made me gravitate towards working with women artists. But also, I don't think there's a lot of galleries out there that do that Mm, um, traditionally. So that's also been lucky for me that I can give these amazing artists a gallery and represent them and work with them without feeling that I've been making wrong decisions or not being guided by right instincts. But I don't exclusively work with women artists. So my next show that I've got coming up is a male artist and I definitely am guided by the work. Yeah. And then maybe I naturally have a kind of inclination towards women artists and their projects. Yeah, I wonder what it is because I was talking to someone in Arles about it as well and how women are still very underrepresented mm-hmm. and if gender's on a spectrum that people that are more towards the female end of the spectrum produce a different kind of work than people that are towards the male end. I really wondered with the work that we were choosing, it's like we weren't going out of our way to have more women but the work that we resonated with coincidentally was made by females. Mm. Well, that's a question for you. Like, yeah. why? <laughs> why do you think that is? That's what I'm wondering. That's what I think. Is it because of the how our brains are wired? Are you producing a different kind of work? It's the work and it's also the working relationship, which is also really important. I think that in general, women are not so confident. And I really like working with an all-female team because I think you bring out the best in each other. I remember that we had this meeting with a, a designer before we started working properly on looking for Alice and Sean had been recommended this designer who happened to be a man and he turned up and it was like this horrible car crash of a first date because he said this is the cover this book is about Down syndrome and Sean who had never done a book before didn't have the kind of confidence or knowledge to say no, it's not. But she just kind of quietly said, it's it's not about Down syndrome. It's about love and family. Mm-hmm. And he goes, no, it's not. It's about Down syndrome. <laughs> and I just thought, I couldn't get over this guy. Yeah. And I, it was just the way, I mean, I'm not saying this is a universal thing. It was just interesting to see this dynamic. And then he left and she said, oh, I don't have to do the book with him. I said, no, you're 100% not. Then I went away and I had seen a work by this designer that, whose work I liked. And then I went on Facebook and I saw that she had two young kids. And then, so I emailed her, Emma Scott Child. I just outlined the story, sent her some pictures and she wrote back and she said, what a gorgeous little girl about Alice. She didn't say anything about Down syndrome, nothing. And I just thought, this is our girl. And then it was such an amazing kind of process working together because it was, it was just really relaxed. And I think that's another big part of it is that dynamic of women working together does allow the best to come out of that person Mm -hmm. that sometimes can get kind of pushed down when there's a male dynamic in the group. Yeah. Not every man, but I'm just saying it's, it's there. And I think any woman listening to this will know exactly what that is, that you're in a group. Maybe it's even one man that can dictate it. It changes the whole dynamic. And that's why I stand by my women in photography pool party, because it's not the same. (laughs) There's like men there. I'm sure you're really nice, but that, so tell me, what's the women? Okay, in- so the, the women in photography pool party has been happening for about three or four years now. Very simple premise. Hotel de Forum Pool, organised by myself and Emma Blau and with the help of 
Fiona from Firecracker and a few other kind of like fast forward were involved a bit this year. And it's very simple. Any woman in R can come to this party and we put some money behind the bar and we have some drinks to start off with. And it's just for an hour and anyone can turn up, but no men. And the just dynamic, the, the atmosphere is just so, so nice, so fun, so relaxed. And it's just for one hour. Men, go and entertain yourselves somewhere else. You yeah, know. exactly. It's only an hour. It's only like. an hour. You'll get over it. <laughs> You're not allowed in. And it's also, it's a reaction against this, oh, 10, 20 years ago, that same pool would have girls in the pool with loads of men around it with their long lens cameras taking pictures of girls. So it's a bit of a two fingers up to that old school kind of French attitude of men taking long lens pictures of women. Yeah. I think it's also as well that kind of camera club personalities that you often get in photography. I don't know when I was very first getting into photography and I'd go to a workshop and then that was my first exposure to this kind of behavior. And I thought, what the hell is this? Just loads of guys that don't know how to use their equipment. (laughs) (laughs) They just want to point it at girls. Like it was really, yeah, for me that was like, oh, wow. Like I didn't know this was a thing. And yeah. It's a thing. (laughs) And the thing is, last year we didn't have anyone on the door and this guy suddenly appeared with a massive long lens camera taking pictures of the girls in the pool. So I had to go up to him and go, excuse me, mate, get out. Mm. And then this year did manage to have someone on the door who I met in my portfolio reviews. Oh. Marino, (laughs) great guy. I knew he was our guy because his work was all about gender identity and performance. And I said, would you mind being on the door just tomorrow I'll women in photography pool party and he's like yeah sure and he said he sent about 10 guys away and they all got he said they all got really shirty with him yeah i was like why why are you getting angry it's not your time (laughs) go and entertain yourself somewhere else for now (laughs) we'll be back yeah i have one i think one last question just to wrap it up so a lot of us in the kind of work that we do in the arts with galleries with books we Mm -hmm. don't do one thing we have a lot of different things that we do and something interesting that you do which i totally didn't expect is that you're the chair of the fitzrovia chapel yeah so what's that and how did that come about the fitzrovia chapel is an amazing very very special place which i became obsessed with when i first came to the gallery because i couldn't go inside it and no and it's about 100 meters from the gallery and now it's hidden behind the, its new development. But it used to be the hospital chapel mm-hmm. of the Middlesex Hospital. And it's absolutely beautiful inside. It's built about 100 years ago, but it's got this gold mosaic ceiling. And it's a very, very special place. And they, they saved the chapel, but they knocked down the hospital. Mm-hmm. And when we first arrived, it was this little island and a big hole in the ground. And I didn't really understand what it was because it's very kind of plain from the outside. But then someone told me that, it was very beautiful inside and and then it disappeared behind hoardings while they did the development. And I've actually just stepped down as chair because I was a trustee for six years and you, you can't be a trustee for longer than that. Okay. But I'm staying on as um, the curator of the exhibitions, which suits me perfectly fine because that's what I really, really enjoyed when I was chair. So I'm, it's a charity for art and the community. It's not a religious place. A lot of chapels are not consecrated if they're part of a public place, like okay. a prison or a hospital or an airport. And so the exhibitions that I've been doing there 
really resonate with the history of the chapel as part of the hospital mm -hmm. and as part of the community of Fitzrovia. And I have done three this year, which are very different, very special. Lee Bowery, he was a, Oh, wow. Okay. I know. Yeah, wow. Australian. Yeah. There you go. He died in the Middlesex. So the other thing that the Middlesex Hospital was most famous for was it had the first AIDS ward in London, which Princess Diana opened in 1987, where she shook hands with AIDS patients without gloves. It was a kind of big deal, but it was still a time of huge stigma. And the whole fact that this ward existed had to be kept secret from the outside world because everyone in that ward would be harassed by the tabloids and yeah. by society in general which because of this huge stigma against it but conversely at the same time the ward became a very special place so the first exhibition we did was Gideon Mendel's photographs from 1993 and it's called The Ward and it ended up being a book that Trolley published mm -hmm. and we're actually going to do another exhibition of that in January for the 40th anniversary of the Terence Higgins Trust the last exhibition was Lee Miller and it was all of her nurses' work. And before that, Caroline Walker, painter, contemporary painter, painting the maternity ward at UCL. So they're all exhibitions that relate somehow to the history of the hospital. Yeah. But, well, you need to come and see next time. Yeah, I definitely, <laughs> absolutely will. Thanks a lot, Hannah. It was really good chatting and I think we could yeah, talk for much longer, but yeah yeah we'll have to save that for another time so okay look forward to it <laughs> yeah so yeah i guess good luck with the next show and thank you yeah i'll see you next time okay mm. bye i hope you enjoyed my interview with hannah watson it's an inspiring story with some emotional highs and lows i really appreciate hannah taking the time out to share her journey with us there are a few takeaways from our conversation one that stood out to me was listening to your intuition and following where it takes you Quite often we do what we feel we're supposed to do rather than what we truly want to, so this was a good reminder to pay attention to those feelings and what they're trying to tell us. In the show notes you can find links to the websites of TJ Bolting and Trolley Books. If you have any questions, comments or feedback to this or past episodes of the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch. In recent episodes of the show, the subject of photography festivals and how beneficial they can be has been spoken about. So I've put together a list of international photography festivals, art fairs and book publishing events which you can access on my website www.michaeldooney.net There's a link at the top right-hand corner of the homepage where you can access the database. Subtext and Discourse Artwood Podcast is streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and every major podcast platform. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone else who would appreciate it, why not send them a link to the show? That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in. My name's Michael Dooney and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.